Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Roberts. Thank you for joining us and thanks to the American Maritime Partnership for sponsoring this podcast. I've really been looking forward to today's discussion. It is focused on China's maritime strategy and how it relates to US maritime policy generally and the Jones Act in particular. This is certainly a timely subject as we continue to work through how America can best respond to China's global ambitions. Not very much attention has been paid to the maritime part of the story, and that gives us the opportunity today to do that. And I'm delighted to be joined today by John Kaskin of the Navy League. John is a true expert on U.S. maritime capabilities on both the military and commercial side of things. He held a key strategic role at the Pentagon for several years, focused on U.S. shipbuilding and sea lift capabilities, among other things. Uh, he also leads a group of experts that get together to really discuss new developments uh, that meets monthly, they're really thought leadership in the maritime industry. So John, it's great to be with you today and really look forward to our discussion. Well, th thank you very much, uh, Mike, and uh, thank you for ha having me here today. Uh, and uh, this is a subject uh, which is dear to my heart. In my capacity as the, the co-chair for the Merchant Affairs Committee of the Navy League, it's, I, I'm basically the proponent for that sea service amongst the four. And I assure you that we do make uh, the, the maritime industry uh, as equal or even greater than the other uh, three, the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. That's great. Well, we really appreciate it. So let's get to it. We're going to talk about the report just issued by the Navy League. The title of the report says a lot. That quote, China's use of maritime for global power demands a strong commitment to American maritime. So there's, a, there's a, a, an assertion and a conclusion in there. It's very useful, I think. So the report was issued about a week ago, and I would encourage everyone to find the Navy League on the web and take a look at the report. It's been picked up by numerous media outlets, including Newsweek. And I understand, John, that you were the Navy League lead on this report. And before we get any further, I want to thank you and the, and the Navy League for this important work. Well, again, thank you, Mike. I really uh, was just an editor of the report. I contributed amongst uh, many others. Uh, Daisy Ridgeway was the primary uh, author. Uh, Sarah Fuentes and Ryan uh, Simon from the Navy League, and Sarah, who is still a strong member of the of Navy League, all contributed to it. And I, and I think we generated a, a very useful product, and I, I'm glad to see that it is getting the publicity that it has, because I think it's an important issue. It is. I agree. Thank you. So let me frame the discussion, uh, and, and to sort of help our listeners, it might be helpful if you could take a minute or two to just summarize U.S. policy concerning the commercial maritime industry and how that has worked out. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm, I'm going to spend a, a minute um, reading what is the policy because it is from the Merchant Act of 1936 and it hasn't changed. And it essentially says it's a policy of the United States to encourage and aid the development and maintenance of a merchant marine necessary for the national defense and the development of domestic and foreign commerce. And the objectives are to have a merchant marine that is sufficient to carry the waterborne commerce, which is the Jones Act, 100%, and a substantial part of the waterborne export and import foreign commerce of the United States, and to provide as shipping essential 
shipping service essential for maintaining the flow of waterborne commerce and foreign and domestic at all times. It's also to be capable of serving as a naval and military auxiliary in time of war or national emergency. It needs to be owned and operated as vessels of the United States by citizens of the United States. It's, it needs to be composed of the best equipped, safest, and most suitable types of vessels constructed in the United States and manned and trained with uh, and efficient citizen personnel. And it's to be supplemented by efficient facilities for building and repairing vessels. So how are we doing against that? Well, for the domestic commerce, we're fulfilling, fulfilling the, the intent of that act. That's the, the Jones Act of, uh, from 1920, which we're celebrating its 100th anniversary, even though the cabotage laws of that type have been uh, here from the beginning of our country. The international commerce part of it, we've got about 86 ships in international commerce, of which uh, 60 are receiving uh, a stipend to fly the U.S. flag. And uh, of the rest, about half of them are on charter to the government. I wouldn't give that such a good grade. Uh, with respect to shipbuilding, we had around 20 shipyards capable of building ocean-going ships. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, we're down to eight, uh, only four of which, uh, four of which only doing Navy work. So there's, there's issues there, although certainly there's a lot of the small and medium yards that are supporting the, the Jones Act shipping. And we don't have, and, the, and with respect to uh, the, the Merchant Marine, they're well trained at the, at the, the uh, federal and state maritime academies, uh, as well as uh, the Maritime Union schools and other facilities but uh, we're 1,800 short if we wanted to uh, crew up the reserve fleets uh, in a protracted wartime operation. So we have an uh, insufficiency of overall uh, uh, crew uh, mariners for wartime operations. So that's uh, really where we are today with respect to uh, how, what the policy is and how well it's been implemented from my perspective. Thanks for that. I, I think the, the, the challenges that the U.S. shipyards have and the uh, especially, of course, in international trades, certainly have led us to a point where we're, we're relatively not very significant uh, in those markets. And, and, and it does sort of the, the change in the China policy certainly cries out for us to, to, um, to relook at that policy. Let me ask you, is there a connection, uh, and, and you alluded to this, but is there a connection in your view between our commercial maritime industry and our national security? In, in multiple uh, aspects of it. Uh, the one that I was most involved in in the, in the Pentagon was the strategic sea lift. Under the auspices of the U.S. Transportation Command and the Joint Staff and OSD, uh, we would determine what were the sea lift, uh, airlift, and land lift uh, capabilities required to support major contingencies. When I first was in the Pentagon, we focused on Iraq and then uh, South Korea. Uh, now the world has changed and uh, we're looking at completely different scenarios, the contested environments uh, and operations if we had to go uh, to uh, support our uh, NATO allies in Europe, uh, if there were any Russian aggression that went across the red line, uh, and as well as uh, in the Pacific where uh, China emerged as a peer competitor. Those op the war plans necessary to to support, to determine the, the lift that's required hasn't been fully analyzed yet. Where the Congress has been asking uh, for a mobility capabilities and requirement study for the last couple of years, but because these war plans are just in, have been under development, we still don't know what is the, 
the requirement for strategic lift and whether we have deficiencies. Although we do have one that everybody has identified even without that analysis in tankers, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit later. So that aspect of the uh, of what we need for national security is under development. What we have today was good for supporting major contingencies in other areas and that were not uh, under a contested uh, environment. Right now, we're concerned about uh, even from the ports of embarkation that there could be sabotage there, or there could be interdiction across the uh, the Pacific or the Atlantic, and of course at the ports of debarkation. This is a completely different game. And we may need more lift to, to take into account attrition. But there is also the security uh, uh, of the uh, nation on which the Jones Act provides, which is to ensure that we're able to move our, our goods and services to our industrial uh, facilities, as well as for our imports and exports. And if we don't maintain our domestic waterways, those uh, lines of communications could be cut off. And we cannot fight a war if our economy uh, is brought to its knees. John, you mentioned the, uh, the, the China uh, and China's maritime policy. There's been a lot of attention in the, in the last year on China's maritime activities. There was a hearing in the Coast, House Coast Guard subcommittee uh, on this. There have been studies and briefs by leading think tanks in Washington. And, of course, the Navy League uh, report that you helped uh, lead. Uh, builds on this work and in some respects really connects the dots in, in my view. Could you summarize what China has been up to when it comes to uh, its maritime industry? Well, I think what China has done is, as well as it's done in a lot of other, other areas, it's copied what uh, we have done in the past. And uh, if we look at how we became a major power, it was under the, the the uh, auspices of the policies of uh, Admiral uh, Alfred Mahan Thayer, which said uh, a, uh, for a country to become wealthy, it must have a strong uh, merchant marine to support its commerce. Its trade in commerce was what brought wealth to a country and that you needed a Navy to be able to ensure that uh, those lines of communications are maintained and you needed to use, have diplomacy as a means to ensuring that that was going to happen backed up with the military. And I think that's exactly what the Chinese are doing, which is what you would expect a, a country that's trying to become a, a great power to do. The issue is that they don't want to play by the same rules uh, as everybody else did as they be rose and became great powers. They wanted to uh, change the their world order and not follow those rules. So they want to say, hey, listen, the South China Sea, there's a, a nine dash lines uh, that was something that's a couple hundred years old that uh, said this was traditional area uh, that we had controlled when we were the Middle Kingdom. We are need to regain that stature. And therefore all of the resources and uh, trade that goes uh, within that region should be under our auspices. So they built uh, these uh, coral reefs into islands in order to provide the military uh, support uh, and they had to uh, support operations if they needed to defend their area of, of interest. Uh, they've tried to put air defense zones uh, in that area and require uh, countries to report when they're in that area. They have taken over uh, 
uh, islands uh, and that are contested uh, and that the international court says uh, they should not have uh, ownership of uh, in the Philippines uh, and, and so on. So they're basically attempting to regain their stature in that they had in the past, which means that they want to have control of their trade within the area. And in order to do that, and they want not only to have the merchant marine and the shipbuilding industry to support it, they also want to ensure that the ports around the world will accept their goods. So they have, through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, developed uh, uh, infrastructure, not only the seaborne, but also landborne infrastructure to ensure that their lines of communications and their trade cannot be impeded by uh, countries that they think may become inimical to them if, if we don't, uh, if the world doesn't agree with their idea of what the world order should be versus the ones that we have lived successfully by and that has helped generate their wealth uh, since the end of World War II. One area that uh, the, the reports dig into a little bit, and particularly the CSIS report, concerns um, government support for uh, commercial shipbuilding and ship operations uh, of China, in China. The report indicates there's uh, the supports uh, totaled $132 billion over a 10-year period between 2008 and 2017, I think are the right dates, but it's, a, it's roughly $15 billion a year in support uh, by the Chinese government to um, to the Chinese commercial shipbuilding and ship operations industry. And how does that compare with U.S. maritime policy and U.S. maritime government maritime support for the commercial maritime industry? Well, as I alluded to, we have been uh, playing by what we wanted is a level playing field with the rest of the world. So we have not subsidized our shipbuilding industry or our shipping, shipping industry or our port industry in the same way because we're following the rules that, that our European allies and our other uh, Asian uh, friends have followed. And so when you do that, you don't necessarily need to, to own and have the capability of all the shipping that's, uh, uh, that comes to your country. You don't need to own all the ports around the world in order to do that if everybody's following the same rules. But uh, the, the Chinese uh, have decided that through the use of their state-owned enterprises and through the support that you talked about, as well as through financing, that they want to uh, build up various elements of the industry. In certain cases, they considered it strategic. Shipbuilding is the perfect example. They have decided that uh, steel and shipbuilding industries, uh, heavy industries, uh, are critical for their ability to, to, uh, to uh, right, become the number one economic nation in the world. And so they have built hundreds of shipyards, whether they're economic or not, in order to uh, generate ships at costs that nobody really knows what they are because of the various indirect and direct subsidies, financing vehicles that are also in, the, in our, on our report so that they can underprice uh, any other country in the world. And right now, they're number one in shipbuilding. Uh, Korea is number two. Japan is number three. They make up 90%. But the China is doing its best to put the other two out of business. And if that's the case, then 
uh, right now, the European Union is very concerned that their shipbuilding industry is going to collapse, particularly uh, if the Chinese go into cruise construction. So they are not playing by the, the same level playing field. Then the question is, what is the impact and what do we need to do to address that? And is it of economic or national uh, defense concern to us? I want to get to that. Uh, the, the net result of the China's uh, maritime policy and the supports that it provides to its industry uh, as compared to U.S. maritime policy is that there are thousands of, of Chinese-built ships uh, operated in the world by Chinese companies and others. And those that are operated by Chinese uh, companies are ultimately subject to government control, the, the Chinese Communist Party, to some degree. Compare that to U.S., uh, where we have maybe 100 large commercial ships built in U.S. yards over the past decade, less than 100 ships flying the U.S. flag uh, at this point in international trades. And those that are there are there because we have programs to uh, enable that. Um, and, and that's not a prediction of where we might end up. Uh, this, it's, a, it's a picture of the reality of where we are today. So why does that matter? Why should you know, people be concerned about that? It's the issue of uh, will the, the Chinese growth uh, get to a point uh, in any area where it could enter, uh, compromise our supply chains. Uh, the COVID crisis has shown that there are certain areas today where uh, the supply chains can be interdicted, whether it's pharmaceuticals um, uh, or strategic materials. And the nation is beginning to react to that in trying to develop policies associated with it. So the question being, uh, is Are we getting to the same situation with respect uh, to shipbuilding and shipping? Uh, with respect to, to, uh, to those industries, uh, the question is, what is it that we need to be able to ensure that we have the capability that is necessary to be able to not have our, our supply chains uh, interdicted? Do we need to uh, develop better relations or more or closer relations with our uh, allies and partners to ensure that there is sufficient shipping to be able to support our economy. We don't necessarily have to have it under our flag. We have to have the ability to be able to gain access to it. Again, there's less than 2% of our trade currently is on U.S. flag ships, uh, international trade. Uh, and we haven't had any issues with that. The question is, can the Chinese get to the point where they could either interdict that or to uh, increase pricing, just which is one of the reasons why the, the Jones Act was established uh, in the first place after the end of World War I. Now, those, when there needs to be some analysis uh, on that. And it's, again, but with respect to shipbuilding, which is a strategic industry, and it is one where we have uh, a, a very small number of uh, shipyards uh, in this country, uh, we need to figure out how to maintain that capability and capacity and, uh, and, the, and the labor associated with it. With the 40,000 uh, vessels that are in the, in the inland waterways and the small shipyards that support it, at least that is an industry that, can, uh, that helps keep up the expertise and skill set because a welder in a small shipyard can go into a welder into a Navy shipyard or one that can build Navy uh, in commercial construction. But we certainly don't want to ha do what, what happened in Canada. Their cabotage law doesn't require a U.S., I mean, a Canadian built ships. 
and they ended up having no shipyards available to build uh, their Canadian Navy or their uh, Coast Guard ships. And they've spent billions of dollars resurrecting that industry. The, the Brits had to go to uh, Korea to get their oilers built. I mean, we really don't need want to be in that type of position. So we have to ensure that we main, maintain what's the minimum necessary because there are a lot of other strategic areas that we have identified we're going to have to make investments in as well as this one. Very interesting. So even even short of getting into a, uh, a shooting war, which we hope never happens, and I think Americans are skeptical that it would happen, but even short of that, China's dominance, potential dominance in the global maritime industry has ramifications that are that are just not in our best interest, potentially at least, right? Well, so, uh, certainly. I mean, they haven't impacted us directly, but they're impacting our friends uh, and our allies uh, in Asia. I mean, there is a, something that most people don't even realize exists called uh, their uh, naval militia. I mean, they have hundreds of, quote, fishing vessels that are definitely fishing vessels, but they're not used for fishing. Uh, and they're used to intimidate the Vietnamese when they want to go do offshore oil exploration. Uh, they've been intimidating the, the Philippines on trying to maintain their, their bases on their, uh, on their islands. And as they continue to do that, and if there is no uh, uh, action to be able to provide a counterforce to that, then they will continue to, to spread uh, that type of intimidation further and further so that they can get back to the period of, of uh, the Middle Kingdom where everybody uh, it becomes a tributary nation uh, to their, under their control. Ultimately, uh, in order for, the, uh, for them to do that, they want us out of the Pacific. And that's really what they, uh, their main objective is, is that we're just an impediment against them for achieving that uh, objective. So how should America uh, respond? We're, we're very be so far behind in terms of commercial shipbuilding, U.S. flag operations. Um, what, what should our response be to, to, this, to the Chinese uh, policies in this area? Well, I mean, we have to do it asymmetrically. We're not going to build a, a, a merchant marine uh, of, uh, of several thousand ocean-going ships. Uh, and we're not going to build 100 shipyards to try to compete them doing that. But what we need to do is to, bring, uh, is to build uh, alliances and partnerships with uh, the countries uh, in, uh, in Asia and around the periphery that uh, the, area, the places where the Belt and Road Initiative has been the strongest, we need to also, with our, our partners, whether it is Japan, whether it's Korea, whether it's Australia, Sing Singapore or whatever other, to build up uh, our own uh, network of capabilities to, to ensure that everybody feels comfortable that they can operate under the current rule of order without having to submit to the one that the Chinese are offering. So it's going to have to be done diplomatically. It's going to have to be done through inter-economic inter, um, uh, activity. And of course, we need to still be maintain a sufficient uh, military capability as a deterrent so that they just don't decide that, hey, listen, uh, we'll just take uh, if we don't get what we want. And you know, that's the same situation that we're trying to do uh, in Europe as well. So we have to maintain that deterrent capability in, in conjunction with our allies.
On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? So bringing it back home, back to our domestic markets, uh, I assume we obviously need to hold on to what we have as in, from a maritime perspective, Jones Act, MSP, and so on. Uh, and that's not enough, as, as we've talked about, but it's, it's a start, it seems to me. Are, are there other, uh, and if, if, you, if you don't agree with that, please let me know, but are there other, are, are there ways we could, should be playing offense uh, in terms of building our maritime capabilities? Well, certainly, um We've got to maintain what we've got. It was a very positive development when we now have both candidates uh, for the presidency that are strongly supporting uh, the Jones Act. Uh, so I think that we need to maintain that. There are still um, uh, think tanks, conservative think tanks that only look uh, at the Jones Act uh, as, uh, as a, from an economic perspective. They just think it's an interference in the marketplace and it should be like all other interferences removed. They don't uh, take into account that the public's uh, good that the Jones Act provides, which is economic and, uh, and uh, national security. And that argument, I think, is, is winning out right now, and we need to maintain that, because that is the foundation from which to build. Now, for international trade, you know, there are various proposals. Uh, the question is, how much resources uh, are we willing to invest in it? Uh, if the mobility capabilities requirement study uh, indicates that we need more types of vessels uh, uh, and more of the same capacity, then that will be a, a growth factor. One area that for sure is where we're going to see, need our, um, growth is in the, in the tanker arena. The concern that, that I didn't mention before is that even though the, the Chinese may not own all the tankers, world and, and not give us access to them, they can intimidate countries that do own tankers that uh, say, hey, listen, if you support the, the U.S. government in this operation, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, trade with us. They'll do economic blackmail like what they did with uh, South Korea when we put a, a fat battery on the peninsula. Right after that, there were no Chinese uh, uh, tourists coming into the country and the cruise ships stopped coming. Uh, and they have done uh, sim similar economic blackmail in other countries that don't go along with their policies. So during the Gulf War and other wars, we're able to get whatever tankers we need off the market. Would we be able to do that in the future? And under the assumption that we won't be able to, and our sources of supply are going to be further away, Transcom uh, initially estimated that we needed 86 tankers overall to support military operations. We have only six in international trade, three are already in charter to MSA, and the rest of them are in the Jones Act. There are about 40 that could be applied, but you know, how many of those could you take out uh, through the volunteer tanker agreement uh, early enough in order to support military operations before they're backfilled with tankers that we might be able to charter for those operations? So we have a shortfall in tankers. The tanker security program, which has been passed by the House, is an initial attempt to address that, but that's only 10 ships. 
Uh, Admiral Busby says we're, we're 50 ships short of having enough ships out there to provide the crews to maintain the, the fleet uh, that we have in the reserve, uh, the 46 that he has and 15 at MSC and the reserve fleets. So, you know, that we have to find other ways to grow. Uh, maybe the TSP will grow to a larger number. Another uh, uh, option is uh, Senator Wicker and Congressman Garamendi's uh, Energized American Shipbuilding Act, which would require uh, a percentage of our export crude oil and natural liquefied natural gas to be on U.S. flag and some U.S. built ships. You know, cargo preference is our only other way uh, to generate international trade. And, you know, we have uh, under the World Trade Organization uh, followed the rules and uh, it has not generated uh, through commercial cargo a lot of opportunity for us. So we may have to maintain, uh, mandate more cargo preferences. In, in military shipping. Another uh, option that, uh, that is dear to my heart is that if the US Transportation Command says that we need to maintain shipping in, in uh, five-day readiness, rather than the buying foreign holes or building new ships to lay up, that we would consider uh, resurrecting our marine highways that were basically decimated when the interstate uh, a highway uh, system was built. We had a lot of uh, shipping up and down the coast in the past, but uh, it became uh, much less expensive when the highways got put into play. Now with congestion on highways and the inability to really expand them, we looked at with the Department of Transportation several years ago about uh, military useful uh, privately owned ships that could take uh, 53 foot uh, boxes or trailers off of the interstates and put them on these trailer ships, just like uh, what uh, TOAD does between uh, uh, Washington State and Alaska. And uh, if we had a couple dozen of those ships along the West Coast uh, and some on the East Coast, uh, then you would have uh, the ability to, to, uh, to meet some of those military requirements without having to build ships to lay up, which, you know, I did that when I was in the Pentagon. I, I felt it was a travesty to build a brand new, perfectly good ship and then put it in mothballs, essentially with a small crew. We need to have an active merchant marine. And I think the uh, policy, um, the National Security Directive that came out in addition to the, uh, the Merchant Marine Act says that we should depend on the active merchant marine to meet our military requirements and only reserve fleets when they can. I think that we need to do better on figuring out how to build up our our National Merchant Marine, um, in particularly the, the, the Jones Act part of it, because the only way that you can get more ships is to have more cargo. And uh, so I think we need to relook at that effort that was done about six years ago, uh, see what the business case analysis is now, given what the cost of trucking is, the cost of rail and, and so on. And that could be, generate another couple of dozen ships initially uh, to help build the Merchant Marine. So it's either increase your preference cargoes uh, by mandating uh, new legislation or, in, or uh, um, increasing your uh, stipends like the MSP and the TSP or uh, doing some type of support to build up your, your, your marine highways. I mean, the government produce, pro, uh, provides enormous amount of resources in the highway system. Um, and how much does it provide into the marine highway system? Five to ten million a year? No, that's just not that's just not fair competition. We really need to build up 
of the marine highways as well. John, thank you. That's, um, th th there's certainly several options, and I think you've outlined them quite well in terms of how the, the American maritime industry can play offense. Uh, sort of starting with the base of, 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 the, of the capabilities, the shipbuilding facilities and, and expertise we have uh, 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 and, and the Mariner base that we have, thanks to the Jones Act, um, uh, and, and then it, and in building from that. Let me, uh, and then I did mention shipbuilding uh, per se. The, the small and medium shipyards, uh, as long as the Jones Act is in play, will we'll have enough business to, to maintain their capability and capacity. They may be transitioning more from uh, offshore oil to offshore wind, but there still will be opportunities for, for the Jones Act. And, and of course, the riverways uh, are still carrying the majority of our bulk cargoes. But of those, of those commercial ships, those four that have been building Jones Act ships uh, in the past, um, the Jones Act doesn't provide a constant flow. And if it did, it wouldn't be sufficient to maintain four shipyards. We've got 100 ships in the Jones Act, and they last 30 years. Uh, that gives you three ships a year, three to four ships a year, and four shipyards, which each shipyard could build two or three ships a year. We have to have a, a, ship build, a national shipbuilding policy that, that coordinates government work, whether it's from the Coast Guard, the Navy, or NOAA, with the Jones Act and look at it from a uh, from a national perspective in order to maintain that large shipbuilding industrial base because those are the shipyards that will be doing battle damage repair for our Navy vessels. They're the ones that build our auxiliaries. They're the ones uh, that, we, that we need to maintain and not get into the situation like Canada did in, in, the, in the past. So I, I didn't highlight uh, the shipbuilding aspect of it and I wanted to be sure to, uh, that I gave it its, its due. Great, great. We appreciate that. There's a lot in this conversation uh, today and, and, then, and in the Navy League report to, to get our heads around. Um, before we close, is there anything further from the Navy League report uh, that we haven't touched on yet that uh, you would like to point out for our listeners? No, I, I, no this report uh, was done because um, the Navy League, as I mentioned before, uh, sponsors all four sea services. And uh, we do have an active legislative affairs program uh, and, a, and a capability uh, to provide campaigns on various uh, issues, voice to Congress issues, where we contact our members of Congress on, on areas like the Jones Act, where we want to ensure uh, that it's maintained. So uh, I'd like to, uh, to encourage uh, people in the audience to go to our, our Navy League website. They don't even have to be members to, to go to the legislative affairs section. And, and if they're in, look at the issues that we're, uh, that we're currently involved in. Um, right now, I mean, the, uh, I already mentioned the Energized American Shipbuilding Act uh, and, they have, and we put them up on a, a regular basis. And certainly if there are other issues um, that people wish us to, to be involved in, you know, please uh, you know, let us know and we will do our best to ensure that the merchant marine that we currently have maintains itself and does what we can to, and will do what we can to help it grow. And so that's all I would like to say. And certainly if people are not members of the Navy League, I would encourage them to become, them, become one uh, because I think uh, we're one of the very few organizations that really do have a strong advocacy program on Capitol Hill in order to try to ensure 
that we do keep this industry going. Well, thank you very much. And we, we thank the Navy League again for, for this very important report. Uh, and we, John, we thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. And thank you for having me, Mike. Thank you, John. Uh, more to come on this subject for sure. We'll leave it right there for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and I would encourage you to share it with others. You can find the American Maritime Partnership on Twitter, at Amp Maritime. This is Mike Roberts signing off.